You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 6th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, everybody. Yo. Bob has the night off. Lazy. But Evan, you're going to tell us what is special about today. That's right. So you're listening to this podcast on October 9th. And it was, in fact, October 9th in 1992 when a great meteor, seen from Kentucky to New York, was observed around 8 o'clock at night, landed in, on the hood of a car <laughs> in Peekskill, New York. Mm-hmm. And there, there is famous video footage of that meteorite falling from the sky over a football game that was going on that night. I don't, you guys, I don't know if you remember seeing that. Absolutely. It's very dramatic. It is. It's, a, it's, it's amazing footage. It's only the fourth recovered meteorite for which detailed data exists on its trajectory. Wow. That is, there's only four? The fourth recovered meteorite. How big was it? 12.3 kilograms. That's sizable. What did it do to the car? Yeah. Smashed it <laughs> right in the front <laughs> hood and front taillight of the car. In fact, the car was sent on a worldwide tour uh, along with the meteorite so people could see the actual rock and the car that it hit. Imagine if there was like two two teenagers making out and they're in the car and it hits the hood and they're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so famous footage. Have a look for it. It's called the Peekskill uh, Fireball. So if you look it up, it's all over the, all over the internet. Uh, so it's that time of year again. You change your underwear? Uh, when that's hope right. springs eternal? Jay takes a shower. <laughs> the annual showering. <laughs> <laughs> the time for the Nobel Prizes. Oh, right. Da, 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 da. Did I get one this year? Did you? Did I? I? Did, I don't did know. you get the call? Did you get the call from Sweden? Well, I've been traveling, so I don't do you, I don't know. Do you even My speak phone Swedish? ran out of credits. <laughs> I don't. Oh. So I mean, some, Actually, I don't think they call anyone anymore. They Skype them. Seeing as how <laughs> Skype was developed in Sweden. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to hang up now, guys, because I'm waiting on a call. Okay. <laughs> So. <laughs> just, just put them on hold. <laughs> so how were the results? Interesting. Um, Evan, you're going to tell us about the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Indeed. So the name does the name Robert Edwards ring a bell to anyone? Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, now it does, <laughs> in case you didn't know it before. He is the winner of the 2010 Nobel Prize for Medicine for the Development of Human in vitro fertilization, or IVF. Mm. His achievements have made it possible to treat infertility, which uh, is a medical condition that afflicts a lot of people. About 10% of all couples worldwide that are trying to conceive children cannot. But isn't that plain God? Yeah, right? Sure. (laughs) That came up in so many news articles. (laughs) Yeah, that's all I saw about this story. (laughs) Plain God. Just because it has to do with reproduction, it's silly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. Like, we can come up with a vaccine, but that's not playing God, but allowing more people to reproduce is. I'm not, well, when I'm he not does sure. the in vitro fertilization, does he have to, like, yell out, oh, God, oh, God, like that? <laughs> I don't think you understand how in vitro fertilization works, Jay. Jay, Jay prefers in vivo fertilization. <laughs> You know, for for a description of exactly what in vitro fertilization is, I thought I'd refer to uh, my friend Seth McFarland and his 
Here we go, Rebecca. Take on it. So uh, here, here, have a listen. We're doing in vitro fertilization. In vitro? What's that? Well, we've got an egg donor. They'll combine her eggs with our sperm and then implant those embryos in a surrogate where, God willing, one of them will grow to term. I thought I saw every episode of Star Trek. Wait, is this Deep Space Nine? Because I won't watch that. It's garbage, and I'll tell you why. One... Stan, this isn't science fiction. It's real fiction. And I think it's fantastic. There you go. Thank you, Seth. So true. Deep Space Nine really is crap. No, only the first season is crap. Then it got good. No, I was just having this discussion on my Facebook page because I just watched a movie on the plane only oh because God. it had the sexy doctor in it from Deep Space Nine. And he got sexier. He is so sexy. So sexy. That's the only reason How I How many times can show. you say the word sexy in one sentence? <laughs> sexy, sexy, sexy. So That guy was about 90 pounds soaking wet. That was a thin man. I like that actor, though. He was also on Babylon 5, if I recall. <gasps> was oh, he? Yeah. Yes. Now you have that. to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I will. <laughs> That's how sad I am. And I'll have you know that I'm a bit jet-lagged, so I'll use the word sexy however many times I want. It's well, we are talking sexy. about IVF. But this this Nobel Prize has not been without its controversy, Evan. No, it hasn't. Uh, it's been uh, – it started off in the 50s when he was doing his initial research. And then as he kind of got closer closer to a solution through the 1960s, um, he was starting to get some backlash from lots of different people, religious leaders, ethicists, and actual, actually other scientists. Mm-hmm. And they at a, at a point, they demanded that the project be stopped. You know, it was interesting because I also read that the ethical debate about this was actually brought up uh, or initiated by Edwards himself, Mm -hmm. which I think is a mark of a very good scientist and that he was able to kind of see all angles of the issue, even in his own research, right? He wasn't just... Well, he was at the middle of it. I mean, he had to know the controversies that were surrounding this kind of technology. Right, but he didn't he didn't get overly defensive about it, right? Yeah. He didn't, you know, take a stance saying, you know, that he was definitely right on the issue. Everybody else was certainly wrong. He was open to the possibilities that this was uh, playing God, for lack of a better term. Well, I mean, to, to, I think to put it a better way, that there were ethical implications to doing this kind of technique, which is fine. And I think it's also fine to separate, to some degree, the scientific achievement from the ethical implications, you know, how we are going to use the technology. Uh, he, he developed the technology itself, you know, and did a lot, you know, mainly from the, the basic science of understanding the process of fertilization. Uh, it wasn't just technical work. It was actually a lot of basic science. Um, so that, you know, we can we can applaud that. And separate from the ethical implications, it's kind of like, you know, would you give somebody a Nobel Prize for developing the atomic bomb just because the science was so good and, and revolutionary, despite the fact that it ultimate, its ultimate manifestation was you know, a weapon of mass destruction. Right. Except that this is sort of the opposite. Because yeah, right. The yeah. Is, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not equating the two. People. Please don't email me. No, I'm just <laughs> saying just the, just the very concept of separating out the science from the ethical discussions about how it gets used. And the, the, uh, the Vatican you know, sounded off on the awarding of the Nobel Prize for this, criticizing it. And I, I, again, I think that even if you take their point that there are ethical considerations about the way embryos are handled and the fact that um, this technique using IVF 
me ultimately leads to the destruction of embryos. Even if that's true, it doesn't mean that the science isn't significant. Over 4 million people today are alive because of in vitro fertilization that otherwise wouldn't be alive. And the Catholics are, yeah, the Catholics are all about reproducing. I mean, they're against condoms and all that. I mean, of course, somebody's going to send me an email saying, I'm a Catholic and I like condoms, but you get my point. Um, they, they love birthing the babies. So surely we can find some kind of I don't yeah. understand why right. they feel threatened by it. And, and if anything, I know people who have had this done successfully and it's changed their lives. You know, Evan, it's not just the 4 million people that are alive because of it, but it's also the parents of those 4 million people that have the extraordinary pleasure of having a child now. It's, you know, it's a win-win situation. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wonderful thing that our technology allows us to do. And for the church to come at it, you know, with, with a crooked eye is ridiculous. Their logic is internally consistent in that they say life begins at conception. Therefore, an, a fertilized embryo is life and deserves all of the dignity and respect that we afford human life. That's their position. So they um, are against the fact that you have to fertilize multiple embryos just to get one to take. And many are frozen for a while, or they're discarded if if they're not needed. Um, and to you know, according to their ideology, each one of those fertilized embryos is a human life. So that that's that's their position. There was an interesting uh, ethical issue that came up just today. Um, that's t- uh, tangential. Tan- Tangential. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> I like where you're going with this. Go God. ahead, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> this is tan- oh god that's sort of related <laughs> i'm really uh, i'm so tired okay. what's that word uh, being in a ta- tangent to something i can't remember okay a british columbia couple had a surrogate mother who uh, they and they found that the fetus had was going to be born with down syndrome and so they wanted an abortion the surrogate though uh didn't want to get the abortion she wanted to take the pregnancy to term and it's sparked this big discussion over who has the right to decide whether or not the child is aborted or whether or not the right. fetus is aborted I should say and so I think it's that that sort of issue that could also play into the church's decision um, to not like something like this because it, it does raise some interesting um, and sometimes it tricky does. ethical concerns it is very tricky you guys of course remember the first test tube baby as, as she was no born. I wasn't alive then Louise Brown, 1978. I remember that. Yep. That was yeah. big news. Well, let's go on to the next one, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. This was given to three individuals, an American and two Japanese researchers, uh, professors Richard Heck, Iichi Nagishi, and Akira Suzuki. And this was for developing a chemical method of manufacturing uh, certain kinds of carbon-based molecules. Uh, we've spoken before about the fact that you know chemistry is you know, critical to our modern civilization and is often you know underrecognized how important it is. What, what they developed was re- really just a method of of producing certain kinds of organic compounds that are uh, extremely useful. The specific method they developed was palladium catalyzed cross coupling in organic systems. 
explain yourself. Yeah, so it's just basically using you know palladium is a, is a metal, and they use that to to catalyze or to increase the rate of uh, reactions that are able to produce certain kinds of organic molecules or molecules with carbon atoms. Um, these are useful in drug development. Uh, for example, there is a specific one that's again that the news is talking about called discodermalide that is being studied as a cancer fighting agent. You know, and that research wouldn't be possible. And if it, you know, if it and turns out to be effective, it wouldn't be possible to mass produce uh, this substance without this process. This that chemical, by the way, was first discovered in this in certain species of sea sponge. So uh, it's also often offered as an example of the fact that you know living organisms are actually very efficient and complex chemical factories. And it's sometimes hard to reproduce uh, the kind of manufacturing process that they that living organisms can do, which is why we actually have sometimes we use techniques like um, recombinant DNA to get bacteria to make drugs for us because it's easier to have living things do it than to do it otherwise. In any case, this also is, I found one other interesting tidbit about this research is that these three researchers are said to have been working independently. So they weren't all part of the same lab or part of the same collaborative project. They were working in different labs, but they were all contributing to the same process. And that actually, you know, happens a lot. I mean, to me, that represents the fact that, you know, in modern science, uh, it's really a community effort. And, you know, researchers will will discover one little piece of the puzzle and then present that at a meeting or publish it in a paper, a paper and then other researchers will pick up on that and you know, add another little piece. So it also you, shows you how valuable competition is. I think. Uh, yeah. If you, yeah, I agree. So it's 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 a good representation of modern science as opposed to again the the more quaint idea of like the lone researcher, you know, laboring away in a lab somewhere that's not engaging directly with a, a community of scientists, right? <laughs> Going mad, mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only mad scientists labor alone in their isolated laboratories. The Nobel Prize. Too bad Bob's not here for this one. The Nobel Prize in Physics is for something near and dear to Bob's heart, and that is zombies. Nope. Oh. For um, I, I tentacle porn. The develop the development of graphene. <laughs> graphene is uh, a essentially a single sheet of graphite or a one molecule thick sheet of carbon atoms arranged into rings, into rings of, of six carbon atoms. So you get like a meshwork that's very, very strong and very, very stable. But it's thin. But it's, it's thin. It's so thin that it's, it's transparent. Uh, but it's an excellent conductor of heat. It's an excellent conductor of current, of electricity. In, in fact, the articles that I read about it said it's it's one of the, if not the best conductor of heat known. Wow. Uh, outperforms all other known materials. It's about as good a conductor of electricity as copper, which means it's good for electronics. Uh, and the these sheets of graphene have been rolled into tubes, and that's your carbon nanotube, right? That's basically ah. a graphene rolled into a tube. That's what loves, inanimate carbon yeah. tubes. Yes, and, and if you ro- if you roll it into a ball... <laughs> That's a fullerene. Oh, cool. Oh. Yeah. 
So it's you know the research in, into different uses of graphene and its properties and different shapes that you can make it into has been exploding in the last you know ten twenty years. Uh, so this seems like an appropriate time, I think, to uh, to recognize this with a Nobel Prize. This went to um, to two physicists, Andre Geim and Konstantin Novoselov, both of the University of Manchester. Of course. That is a. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, but it's not Andre Geem's greatest achievement. It, it Do you isn't. know what else he's done? Nope. Uh, zombies. <laughs> no. <laughs> close. Actually, not close. Not anywhere near to being close. No. Andre Geem, in the year two thousand, won the Ig Nobel Prize for what? using magnets to levitate a frog. Ah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, that was him. Oh. That was him. And <laughs> for those of you who don't know, the Ig Nobel Prizes are uh, awarded every year at Harvard University. How's the frog? Is it okay? I believe that the frog survived. Um, oh, phew. Yes. So don't worry about that. Yeah. Powerful magnets. He's the frog. Up, yeah. See? Yeah. The, the name of his paper, um, which was also uh, it was a, a joint project with Michael Berry, it was titled "Of Flying Frogs and Levitrons." For those of you who don't know, um, the Ig Nobel Prizes are awarded every year at Harvard University to science that makes us laugh and also makes us think. Although they've occasionally been a bit lax about the latter, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes they'll give out satirical awards to, for instance, this year, uh, British Petroleum won an award for. Disproving the notion that oil and water doesn't mix. <laughs> Things like that. You but yes, Andre, <laughs> Andre Kim did become the very first in history Nobel and Ig Nobel Prize winner. Wow. That's awesome. Um, wow. So yeah, the, um, the Ig Nobels are awarded at the same time as the Nobels. So they were just done um, this past Thursday night. Uh, the 20th, it was the 20th first annual Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. And if you're curious, I could tell you about a few other uh, illustrious winners. I'm curious. Good. Tell. Good. Do tell. Um, a team from the Zoological Society of London um, perfected a method to collect whale snot using a remote control helicopter, thereby winning them the Ig Nobel Prize in engineering. The uh, paper was titled, A Novel, Non-Invasive Tool for Disease Surveillance of Free-Ranging Whales and Its Relevance to Conservation Programs. Isn't that called grist or something? I think you're talking about ambergris. Yeah, ambergris is whale vomit. Yeah, ambergris yeah. is basically whale vomit. used to be uh, quite the commodity. In perfumes. In, in manufacturing like perfumes. I don't know how right. much of a demand there is, is for it still, but... Only in Japan. <laughs> right. The Medicine Prize, the Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine went to uh, Simon Reitfield of the University of Amsterdam and Ilya van Beest of Tilburg University for discovering that symptoms of asthma can be treated with a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. Roller coaster asthma, when positive emotional stress interferes with dyspnea, dyspnea perception. Yeah. That would be quite a fun study to partake in. If, the, if that's the case, I wonder if they'll do more research into prescribing something with adrenaline for people to take. Or they'll just start prescribing roller coaster passes. I think that would be the best. That makes like I have mild asthma, I think, but I've never had it checked up. This this is going to make me go if I can. Although, yeah, this sounds like it's not an improvement in actual 
breathing just in the perception mm. of of their symptoms. Ah. What about my asthma? I'll give you asthma. I like the the Peace Prize for confirming that uh, the widely held belief that swearing relieves pain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Doesn't it? It does. It, it's a placebo. I don't even care if it's a placebo effect. I, I stub my toe and I, I can't help it. I have to yell something profane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Ig Nobel Prize for Public Health went to a team from the Industrial Health and Safety Office of Fort Detrick, Maryland, for determining by experiment that microbes cling to bearded scientists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I know is going to upset a lot of people because beards are very popular among scientists, particularly like the younger uh, hipstery scientists that I tend to hang out with. Yeah. They like their beards. That reminds me of other research showing that bacteria also clings to neckties. That's right, yeah. That that uh, can become a way of yeah, yeah. transmitting it. So we have, to, we have to switch over to bow ties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll give you two more. The Ig Nobel Prize for Management went to a team who demonstrated mathematically that organizations would become more efficient if they promoted people at random. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That's awesome. Which, yeah, is something that it confirms a long-held belief I've had since working in an office environment. Yeah. Yeah, That that implies that the forces that lead somebody to get promoted are actually counterproductive to office efficiency. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, if you watch the TV show The Office, it seems to support that. It's true, which Random. is basically real life, right? <laughs> I always felt that mediocrity was rewarded in offices. Somehow it always seemed that the most mediocre person who could just do the job uh, or at least look like they're sort of doing uh, no, the job. No, you guys have it all wrong. It's the politics. It's the people who put themselves in front of the people who make the decisions and, and ass-kissing and yeah. all that, does it? I've never been very good at that. Um, last one, the Ig Nobel Prize for Biology went to a team that scientifically documented fellatio in fruit bats, which I believe we talked about. We did talk team. about that, didn't we? Uh-huh. Yeah. And they deserved it because that video is amazing, especially when it's put to like the, you know, the sexy, there we go, again, sexy, sexy beat. And you can, <laughs> and it's like or slow that motion. Se- that 70s wah-wah. It's pretty, wah-wah. yeah, it's pretty hot. It's pretty hot. So yeah, Ig Nobel Prizes this year. Congratulations to all the winners. They are always fun. So that's the, those are the Nobel and Ig Nobel Prizes for this year, for 2010. We're going to have one non-Nobel-related news item this week. Jay, you're going to tell us about getting diesel fuel out of a rock. Not, not a rock, but a A rock. rock. A rock. And, and we're not talking about shale or anything like that. We're just talking about... You know, uh-huh. like a rock, like granite. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, thank goodness! Good this is this news item is interesting just because it shows one how a little ingenuity can make you uh, one point seven British one point seven million British pounds. That's heavy. And a hidden container of diesel fuel uh, <laughs> perched <laughs> appropriately. So this happened in Zimbabwe. Uh, which, if you don't know, it is located in the southern part of the continent of Africa, which is yep. just north of South Africa. So this story starts in 2007. A spirit medium named, and her first name is actually No Matter. It's N-O-M-A-T-T-E-R. No, it matters. No Matter Tejuria. And oh, she, somehow, awesome. she somehow gathered 
some top-ranking Zimbabwean security officials and the country's minister of national intelligence and some police officers and defense people. She got all these people assembled for a demonstration of her unique power, which is to draw diesel fuel from rocks. That's her super, you know, superpower. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, she did this by hitting the rock. And then what the officials saw was a sudden gush of fuel pouring down the rock. And what was funny is there, there are pictures of, of this, and I guess she had had to do this demonstration many times, but there's a pictures of, of these demonstrations where the government officials were said to be gasping in delighted amazement as diesel fuel poured out of the rocks <laughs> by her command, you know? So, like, they totally bought it. And so what was actually going on was, you know, the officials believed it wholesale, but actually what was happening was there was a hidden assistant hiding in the bushes, and all they did was open up a container holding the diesel fuel, and it poured... Hey, hey, hey. Spoiler yeah. alert. What? Oh, Go on. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Such a sophisticated operation. Yeah. I just, I just feel sorry for the people listening to this that you know we're really into it. Yeah, we're believing just, it. Just it. Um, <laughs> yeah, they couldn't see that one coming. <laughs> so, and it must, and it's very easy. Like you know, the, here's the rehearsal behind the scenes. You know, so I'm, I am the psychic, and I tell my assistant, okay, when I tap on the rock, open the spigot right then. <laughs> Okay, open this bigot. Open this bigot. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, let's do this, right? So That's then, it. <laughs> so the person's hiding in the bushes. It opens it up. The, the diesel fuel pours out. And, you know, sadly, not one of these people questioned it. They they actually, like, <laughs> revered her. Like, she actually had them do some things. Like, in, in, in Zimbabwe, I guess it's a sign of respect to take your shoes off. And it had these government officials taking their shoes off. And she had them going she for had a while. Her, she had her stick down. She had her, her persona you know, she's a magician, like any stage magician. You first you have to convince them that you're legitimate, and then the rest, the parlor trick, is an afterthought, right? You, the the trick is getting them eating out of your hand ahead of time, right? Yeah, I think Mark Twain said it. Uh, he said that if you can convince everyone that you get up at the crack of dawn, that person can get up at noon for the rest of their lives, and they're going to always be thought of as an early yeah. riser. You, you know? get, a, get a reputation as an early riser and you can sleep till noon. This comes back to our <laughs> office example. Exactly. Ahead. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. get the, the charismatic psychopath will get ahead. All right, now that, that's yeah. the funny part. The sad part is, though, for real, is that there, there are tremendous fuel shortages in Zimbabwe. And these eager government officials like jumped at the display you know they were very excited about it they, like i said they gave her 1.7 million british pounds they gave her a farm they gave her mm-hmm. armed guards a convoy of vehicles you know to help her uh to to do her magic and to generate more fuel right. and and they even uh gave her access to a helicopter to fly her around i guess and she you know to to do her shenanigans what was she thinking, though, in terms of what was the end game for her? Yeah, where, where do I go yeah, from right. here? Because how, how did she think this was going to last? You're gonna, you, I, I could see you could put them off for a while. I mean, she must have had the plan of at some point just vanishing with the cash. Yeah. She did. Yeah, she did. Exit, yeah. exit strategy. She did. She ran, yeah. and they got her. So they, this is like what I'm uh, saying. Is this is why the news story popped up again because she conducted oh, all this BS in 2007. But what recently took place was I guess they nabbed her somehow. Okay. They, give her give her a trial, probably. Yeah. So and um, she was sentenced to thirty nine months. This happened, uh, you know, two to three weeks ago, for fraud and for supplying false information to government 39 officials. Thirty nine months. But there there is e- there is even a little bit deeper story here too, and I found this point very curious. At one point, 
a government employee supplied uh, supplied her with 125 liters of diesel fuel. Mm-hmm. She actually requested and got 125 liters of diesel fuel from the very government that she was promising to supply the well, fuel that was, to. Well, that was the seed, right? That's what you have to use in order to make the magic work. Yeah, so, yeah no, that makes perfect but, sense. Right. And uh, so the fact that she had to ask a government official for the very product that she can magically produce is ironic. That well, that's, same, that's like that story, that kid children's story. We're going to feed Zimbabwe now by making soup out of a magic stone. Mm. Of course, the soup tastes better if you add little carrots, you know. And you got to add some onions, and by the time you're done with it, you've already, you've added everything that you need to make a soup, and the stone is superfluous. So that same uh, government official uh, that was reported to have been involved in some voting poll slash scam or or you know upsets, like you know, so this person has been seen to be potentially corrupt, and you know, I so. suspect that she is actually a a part of the overall scam, even though it was not proven or, re- or reported that way, just from what I read, it seems that she may have had something to do with it. But, you know, we, the, the feedback we often get, and, and from everything that I read, this part of the world is extremely superstitious. This is the culture. I mean, it's hard to, I guess, really fully appreciate this from our perspective, you know, in the West. It seems astounding. I mean, how could they possibly have fallen for this? But, you know, you got to put it in the context of the culture. It's not even the culture. I mean, you know, we have pe- people that listen to this show. You know, most of us live in the U.S. Rebecca's in, in Europe. You know, we have people all over the world that listen to this show. And, if we, you know, everybody can say that they, they think and know that a lot of people that, that they work with and that they know personally, there's a lot of people that are ignorant out there. Like, th- this could be pulled off anywhere. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we look at, um, you know, look at our faith healers here. I mean, they do completely ridiculous things that seem totally obvious. Or like feng shui uh, guys going into government offices, you know, and getting government contracts. We've talked about that in the past. Oh, I Um, agree. I agree. But it's the... It's a culturally appropriate scam, right? Mm. So absolutely. Things that seem ridiculous to us are taken for granted in other cultures and then but yeah people in this country like, can get fooled by as you say a faith healer or other things uh, because it's part of the culture that might seem you know ridiculous to other people the, the thing that particularly bothers me about this I don't like hearing about a government getting bamboozled and yeah. uh, for obvious reasons the government represents the people that money you know 1.7 million british pounds that's a that's a pretty big chunk of change you know and that's just on one little program with one little psychic somewhere you know it's not you know and all the other resources they threw at her but you'd figure that governments would be insanely more careful with their money but the sad fact is, is that so much you know hard earned tax dollars that the government is throwing around is just it's 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 given away to ridiculous things. Everybody yeah. knows it. We all know it, and there's very little that can be done about it. Getting back to the idea of different cultures having different weird things happening, um, you know, I know we have listeners all over the place. Those of you who are in areas like this, please start a blog or something because I really like to hear about stories like this from yeah. your perspective. Um, and there's a there's a blog I follow, that, and he just doesn't update often enough, and so I don't know if he listens, but um, it's Botswana Skeptic. Um, of course, Jay's story, this happens next door in Zimbabwe, but botswanaskeptic.blogspot.com, um, he reports on, on things from 
his area. Um, yeah, it, it's more interesting, and we learn more when we, we when we hear from you guys. So please uh, keep right. us in the loop. And I really like to. I like it when we get tips from yeah. people in um, in countries that we don't normally hear from um, in terms of the skeptical movement, at least the English speaking right. skeptical movement. Well, it's time for who's that noisy? But first. I, I get sometimes interesting Skype notices while we're recording the show, because, of course, I have Skype open, because that's how we're talking. And Skype just told me that it's Tim Minchin's birthday today. Oh. Hooray. Happy, Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Tim. Tim is a cool guy. Ready to sing? No? No. no I, oh, okay. We'd just I mean, be... Yes. Anyway, we'd have to, we'd, have to, we'd have to pay royalties or something, if we say? That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'd have to do Isn't one of those, like, fake fake ones. They yeah, do it, like, TGI Fridays and stuff. Can make yeah. up our own happy, birthday. Happy, song happy, happy birthday, birthday. Right. Things like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I like that. Like, okay. <laughs> happy birthday, happy birthday, and I hope you have another one next year. There you go. That's good. Thank All you. right, Tim who's that proud noisy? Of that. Who is that noisy? Shall we replay last week's noisy? Oh, God. I, don't be so formal, Evan. Christ, who are you talking to? <laughs> Shall we play last week's? Come on, get gritty. I'll, get I'll, jiggy. Come I will on. recalibrate for the, uh, for the demographic of our audience. <laughs> Thank you. Yo, my homies, check this out, yo. Check, check it out, oh, yo. <laughs> Please make it stop. <laughs> the white, it's unbearable. It is unbearable. It's so blinding. Hang on. Hey. A winner! <laughs> and we have a winner. <laughs> so, someone guessed it was a baseball card and a bicycle spoke being spun, <laughs> spun around. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting who's that noisy. <laughs> it's some guy, I, I have no idea. My guess would be some kind of crustacean. Uh, yeah, sort of. Or a shrimp. <laughs> okay. Maybe. A shrimp. It? No, it's, uh, you guys are on the right track. It is um, from the ocean, an animal okay. from the water. It's a, a dolphin. That is, no, it's a herring. A herring. A herring. A herring. Red herring. Now, what kind of noise do you think that is? The sound of it ejaculating. No. That's him spinning a, a wheel at a carnival. Close. <laughs> <laughs> Roulette? Passing gas. Oh, there we go. Herring farts. Herring, herring farts. farts. The sounds of nature. Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty feeble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Steve, being that that his ass is the diameter of a pin, <laughs> so I know he's, that. he's pushing it out pretty hard. Steve, do you know what kind of how much evolution had to take place in order for that herring to make Four that noise? Years. Yes, exactly. Well, but what a fish eat that gives him gas? Like it's funny to think that a fish would would produce gas. Seaweed, beans, sea beans. <laughs> <laughs> sea beans <laughs> Why is that so funny? Because yeah. you haven't right. slept in three days that's why. I, okay. I, would, I, would like to re- I would like to read this post sea to beans. you <laughs> Okay Alright, it's from M. Brent Hawkins Post number one Has Who's That Noisy already been answered? If not, I'd like to tell you to pull my Finray The sound is a fast, repetitive <laughs> tick Produced by a certain herring species, which expel gas out of an anal duct to communicate. I am embarrassed to know this, however, because cloopiform fishes lack barbells, which are the most interesting feature of fishes. 
So what what is the fish communicating that he has to fart? Look, if you can't, you know, if you can't talk underwater, you just got to go out the other way, I guess. <laughs> hey, whatever works. Right. Sea beans. There's, there's, <laughs> sea beans. there's always there's always some listener out there whose specialty is the narrowest thing we happen to be talking about. That's what I'll, Steve, that is what is awesomely profound I know. about I, yeah, I, I love love it. Usually they're listen. more annoying about it. <laughs> In this, no, this case is, this is cool. <laughs> well, well done. Excellent M. Brett Hawkins. And his first post, nonetheless, even better. I love it when their first post is the answer to who's that noisy. Mm. Gets me all warm and well tingly inside. Congratulations. Right. What do you got for, right. this, for this week? Yeah, this week. Here's this week's Who's That Noisy? It's Charlie Brown's it's the teacher. teachers from Peanuts. Yeah, it's so easy. It's so easy. <laughs> yes. Come on, that can't. You, this is bullshit. You made that no, up. No, it was staticky. It was garbled. It was whatever you want to call it. It was a mess of a, of a noisy. But it is. What's that word I like, Steve? Ah, oh, the most unique. <laughs> <laughs> when things are the most unique. Linguists, yes, get your emails ready. We'll I'm get, dying uh, to know what that is. I'm di- I, predi- I have no idea. I predict someone's going to get that correct. Yeah. We'll see if my prediction is true. Good luck, everyone. Oh, I would All like right. to I, – I have one uh, thing I need to say. The person who submitted the Who's That Noisy from last week, the farting herring, uh, Jerry from Brisbane, Australia. Good Brisbane. One, Jerry. Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. Brisbane, Australia brought it to right. our attention. Thank you very much, Jerry. Jerry also has recordings of himself farting, which we didn't want to use on the show. But that that just got weird. <laughs> well, who doesn't, right? So before we move off the who's that noisy topic, we did get a very interesting email from a listener about the hyena noises that we discussed two episodes ago. Yeah, this is from Audrey DeRose Wilson, who gives her location only as the U.S., and Audrey writes... Recently, I was catching up on some SGU podcasts, and I was delighted to hear the hyenas in Who's That Noisy for episode number 269. I studied spotted spotted hyenas, the laughing hyena, in Kenya for several years, and I believe I can speculate about what was happening in your audio clip. The hyena's giggle is usually emitted by a subordinate individual in response to an approach or aggression by a dominant individual. To anthropomorphize a bit means, leave me alone, I'm not a threat to you. The giggle is frequently heard during competition at kills and when hyenas mob lions. I think the latter is what is happening in your Who's That Noisy clip because, in addition to giggle calls, the hyenas are whooping, which is their long-distance communication often used to call clan members to a scene. I also think I can hear the deep groan of a tormented lion toward the end of the clip. The hyena's laugh is really nothing like human laughter, although I do think it's interesting that a common human response to an intimidating situation is nervous laughter. Hyenas are fascinating animals, the exceptions to many rules behaviorally and morphologically. I wish more people knew something about them besides their crazy laugh and the myth that they're mangy scavengers. Then she gives a link to some hyena info, and she says, sorry for the long message. I really get excited about hyenas. Love the show. (laughs) Keep up the good work. I love emails like that. That's yeah, cool. that is a great email. Again, another yeah. example of our, there's always an expert out there in, in everything that we talk mm-hmm. about. And I didn't like, know that hyenas whoop, 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 whoop it up. You know? <laughs> yeah, a lot of animals, you know, we know them as like for the one noise that they're famous for, but they actually make a, a range of noises. 
Evan's gotten us that on a few times, like the the less common noises that animals make. Hmm. Yeah, like a farting fish. Never yeah. didn't even know. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Exactly. But you know, that's that's part of. Look, I understand people learn a lot from listening to this podcast. I hope people realize we are learning just as much, if not more, from the feedback and the information that our listeners give oh, yeah. to us. It's, it's really a tremendous learning experience. All around, I've always said this is a very symbiotic relationship we have with our mm. with I always our thought audience. it was parasitic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel which, like which I'm one's feeding the off parasite? of Steve. So. <laughs> I, you know, guys, as if we haven't Interpret that up. as you will. As if we haven't made it obvious, like, I mean, if you're a, an expert and you hear us mention something that you can add to or clarify for us, we love it. I, there's, it's too bad yeah. that we don't have the time to actually read more of the emails that we do get that clarify things. We just can't do it because we only have time to record you know, one show a week. Uh, do you have a couple more uh, emails to talk about? We had some many people give feedback about the uh, comment we made. We were talking about the new planet that is – uh, the closest to an Earth-like planet that we've discovered so far. Uh, I think it was just last week where I t- talked about the planet Gliese 581. 581G, lowercase yeah. g. Gliese 581G. At one point, I think, Jay, you, at, you were asking about like, what it would be like to, to be on that planet. Now, this planet has about three to four times the mass of the Earth. And uh, I said something to the effect that, well, it would have three times the gravity. Uh, but that's a misleading statement. While it would have three times the gravity total, the surface gravity, which is more relevant to what it would be like to be on the planet, would not necessarily, and in fact probably wouldn't be three times that of Earth. And that is because the surface gravity is determined by the mass of the planet, but also its radius, right? And the farther you get away from the center of mass, the center of the of mass of the of the planet, the less the surface gravity is you know, by um, following the inverse square law, right? So if you want to calculate, let's say, the relative surface gravity of a, of a world, of a planet, all in Earth relative terms, right? You can say the number of G, where 1G is the average surface gravity on the Earth, uh, would equal the relative mass of the planet divided by the relative radius squared. So, for example, you could take uh, let's let's say that this the Gliese 581g had four times the mass of the Earth uh, and was a rocky planet with roughly the same density as the Earth, so that it would have something like uh, 1.2 times the radius. Okay, so if it had four times the mass, that's m would equal four divided by 1.2 times the radius squared. That would equal 4 divided by 1.44, or a surface gravity of 2.78 times that of Earth, not 4 times that of Earth. Of course, the bigger it gets, the smaller that is. If it was more of an icy world, then it's, say, twice as big as the Earth. So now it's got 4 times the masses of the Earth, but it has twice the radius it would actually have the same surface gravity as the Earth, right? Because it would be 4 divided by 2 squared, which is 4 or 1. So I thought that was interesting, and quite a number of listeners provided that feedback to us. And there was also quite a lot of feedback about our discussion on science education. I'm going to actually read an email that 
that we're going to discuss in a minute, but a lot of people did comment on the fact that, again, it's interesting. Sometimes you make an offhand comment, but especially if it's political, I mean, there's no question that if we touch on any kind of political ideology, that provokes a tremendous amount of feedback, um, often quite heated. What happened last week was Jay brought up the notion of uh, providing essentially merit pay, rewarding teachers for doing good work. And I made the comment that that is not going to happen because because teachers unions don't like merit, the notion of merit pay. That was really all that that uh, I said about it. I actually never said that the, the, the problems we're having with the quality of science education are due to teachers unions. Uh, but a lot of people interpreted it that way. But I was never making that point. I don't have any information to either establish or refute that. So I, I got I, a very, very good email from a listener that yeah. we went back and forth, and he, he really gave me a ton of information. And one thing he said about Meripay, which made sense I never thought of before, is if you get stuck with a dud class, which does happen, you know, you get you get enough students that don't want to do the work, that aren't aggressive enough in their studies – you know, you you won't get the merit pay. Number one and number two, you actually can be graded um, as a teacher when when you are reviewed. You can, you get negatively reviewed by the governing uh, body because you're not doing well that semester as far as the students' grades go, it, and it may not even result in the actions of the teacher. Well, I, I agree that that judging merit is complicated. We have the same problem yeah. in medicine. If you know, when, whenever you the try to rank physicians or rank hospitals or you know in any way list their statistics uh, it's it actually could be very counterproductive because let's say if a surgeon is going to have his you know survival rate of a certain surgery made public as if this is useful information for the public to have then they'll stop doing risky cases right they're not they won't operate on people who are likely to die because that's going to make their numbers bad um, so it's, it becomes a lot easier to game the system or to buff your numbers, and and you actually start punishing people for taking on risky cases. And in the, what you're saying is teachers teachers would be punished for having challenging students or classes. But you can also, of course, adjust the assessments based upon the difficulty of the students or the baseline of those students. So not just like how many A's or B's do you have, but – you know, what, where were your students starting at the beginning of the class and where did they end? So, it, right, so it's a, it's a relative assessment, not an absolute assessment. Um, but I agree that it's complicated. That doesn't convince me that it's always a bad thing. I think that there are ways of recognizing teachers who excel and rewarding them uh, without creating perverse incentives in the system. Well, what right? about the teachers who fail tests that they are given about like math teachers I hear about failing math tests you know when when they're tested I think that's the, I think that's more along the lines of appropriate measure of merit in a sense well that's easier well that just tells them that just tells you about their knowledge not their teaching ability no I, I think that it's that's something component. that needs to be I get it's one component it's important I think it needs to be assessed I mean I think you need to meet minimal criteria for fund of knowledge in the area that that you would then teach. I agree with that. You have to pass a basic math test to teach math, and 
pass a basic science test yeah, to teach science. Of I course. Think that's perfectly reasonable. A, a, a number of teachers wrote and said that they um, – the problem is that they, they have to teach – to a test. So yeah. they're more concerned about teaching their students how to pass the test, and that test is like the holy grail of what's going on in the classroom. Right. It's not that they're concerned about it. The school system is forcing them to teach to the test. Right? Even that in some cases they said it takes away from science class. You know, science class is canceled because you are now going to learn whatever, you know, how to test or material that will be covered on the test because that's the school system you know, sort of lives and dies by how well their students do on these standardized tests. So, the, the, you know, this is this is an old debate about when you put in, you know, do, is it a good thing to have uh, ways of measuring how schools are doing, uh, but at the same time, as soon as you establish a standardized test, you run the risk of teaching to the test as opposed to giving, and you, and, you, and then you you squash any kind of innovation. Right. You know, or, or dynamism, and it becomes ultimately counterproductive. These are challenging questions, and you know, I'm not pretending to have the answer to them, or that there is any simple answer. Yeah, you know, but I don't think they're unsurmountable either. Is is there a difference? So, what's the is there are there differences that they can compare between, say, public school teachers and private school teachers, and how they compare in these kinds of 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 tests? Do you understand? It's what I'm it's saying? really hard to compare. First of all, actually, in this country, private teachers have uh, don't have the same requirements as public school teachers. You know, you can actually, it's easier to get a job as a private school teacher because there, you don't have to have the, the same amount of uh, degrees and whatnot. You know, the, the private schools can make up whatever rules they want in terms mm-hmm. of who they'll, they'll hire. But also the private schools have lots of advantages. They can kick people out. You know, they they can choose who to accept, and they can kick people out for whatever you know internal rules they have. It, it gives them options that public schools just don't have. Yeah. So it's 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 I think it's just hard to compare make those comparisons. We did get one email that I actually want to read. Uh, this comes from Chuck Patterson from Easton, Pennsylvania, and he writes, "I really enjoy the show. I've been listening for about a year, as well as going back and listening to all the old shows. In your most recent episode, you discussed poor science education in the U.S. I have a daughter in the second grade and want to make sure she has a good knowledge of math and science that will serve her well, whether she grows up to be a scientist or follows her current ambition to be an artist who lives in a castle." I tried to point out cool, in my opinion, facts about the way the world works. The other night, we turned off all the lights and used a flashlight and a globe to show how the Earth's tilt causes months of the darkness at the North Pole, followed by it being the land of the midnight sun. You mentioned that you had essentially taken over your daughter's science education. Can you give more specific information? How structured are your teaching efforts with your kids? Do you simply use fund activities like my globe example? Do you have textbooks at home that you actively teach from? Can you point me to some resources that you use? Thanks to you and the rogues, keep up the great work. So I thought this would be a fun discussion and and perhaps um, give some practical ideas about how parents – can help improve uh, the science education of their kids, you know, while we're waiting for the school systems to improve. And I actually do a lot of different things. It's very informal, actually. I don't follow any kind of formal structure, uh, although I do have lots of science books around the house. You know, hopefully they'll pick them up on their own, but also, you know, we, we read through them together, and, and that's always great. But it is just, a, uh, I think the one really helpful, important thing that I do is just have fun with them. You know, if so, like for example, if there's going to be a lunar eclipse or a meteor shower, you know, I try to get really excited about it and and 
sort of share that enthusiasm with them. But also, like the other night, we just went out and just looked at some constellations, and it was I just want them to have fun with it. And maybe I'll pick on like one teaching point to get across. Like you don't want to overwhelm them with a lot of different things, but just right. some basic concept about how the universe is put together, like the notion that all the stars that we're seeing are all suns in their own right with with their own planets going around them. They're just really far away, you know. Just one thing that just one t- one take home message. And and we do all kinds of things like that, like just going through the woods and on the side, all right, the one thing I want them to understand today is that all living things require energy and plants get their energy from the sun and, you know, sort of take it as far as, as their interest is in it. Uh, but that's it. Just, you know, just really basic things that everything everybody should know um, and, and make it very fun. And the other thing that I do is I ask them every day about their schoolwork and, and especially their science work at school. And often I'll... Um, sort of search for what I think is the real lesson they should have been learning. Sometimes it's obvious what the point of the lesson was. Sometimes it's not. But I just asked them, so the questions, what I think they should have learned from that, you know, if they did a project or if they were learning about something in science class. And then I essentially, you know, fix whatever I think is broken about what they learned. What I, what I often find is that like my daughters will give me some kind of a of a memorized pat answer, right? Like I ask them uh, 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 something about a, a science lesson that they have. That it sounds to me like they're quoting the book, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever the lesson was. And what I want to know is that, what do they understand? You know, what's their understanding of the of the topic? And so I'll push beyond just like the superficial rote answer just to see what the, what they really learned from that. And often I find, this is also again why I'm a little frustrated with the science education, I find that it's superficial in terms of like really getting the students to understand what they're supposed to learn from the project. Uh, but then I do that. You know, I just make sure that they, they come away with it what I think is the important lesson to come away with. Like all things in parenting, it's just a matter of of being on top of things and spending quality time. Mm-hmm. That's true, Steve. I mean, you do put a lot of time in. You definitely weave it into pretty much everything. I mean, in, in Steve's kitchen, they have like there's a, a a big bay window that looks out on the bird feeders that he put out on his porch, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's just a constant flow of birds coming and going. And you you know you've spent so much time with your older daughter Julia that you know she. Very nonchalantly now. It's so funny. Like I saw a bird come up. I'm like, what kind of bird is that? And it's like, it's like barely perceives her looking over her yeah. shoulder, tiny bit. She like names the bird and throws a fact out about it. Boom. Yep. You know, like every build woodpecker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, like you know, she she is, in particular is definitely a sponge for information. But I mean, I remember her being able to rattle off like a gigantic list of dinosaurs like she 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 has good great retention but the fact is steve like you're constantly massaging the information into their heads it's constant yeah but it's also it's very casual you know that's why and i use the word massage and not beat yeah i mean i know it's it's just all it's, you know, it's, it's too many it's, things you could say to that right. but i never want to make it seem like work or like a chore and if they're ever not in the mood, then I'm then I back off. Right, right. Yeah, it's yeah. always just, oh, isn't this interesting? It's just really just sharing my enthusiasm. You know, like you mentioned the ivory-billed woodpecker. You, you know, I actually 
got into a conversation with my daughter about that. She's fascinated by the fact that there may be this extinct bird that that was sighted, you know, recently, and that she that it's a controversy, and that experts disagree, and that's exciting. You know, there's actually a story there. And then we, you could, there are so many lessons you can come off of that. Well, how do we know if it's really there or not? And then you get there's a lot of skeptical lessons you derive from that as well. You know, people think they see Bigfoot when they haven't. So people thought they saw the ivory-billed woodpecker. And, you know, how would we know if they really saw it or if it was just a, a, a mistake? You know, the vast majority of kids are curious. Yeah. And they like science out of the gate because science is like, is like, a curiosity machine like there there's things yeah. to learn that they would never have imagined on their own and and every every answer they get you know may, is built in to have it, its own questions about it and you don't have to push kids too hard to like get into it especially if you do something hands on or whatever i mean i remember my dad helping me with with things that i was doing in science class and you know we we always had an awesome time like just like going over his science stuff and he'd ask me about it and then, you know, quiz me on things and stuff like that. I remember at one time uh, my father was showing me how heat passes through metal and he had a, an aluminum strip of metal and he put some wax on the end of it and it, dry, and it dried, you know, it, it cooled and it, and it got hard. And then he just simply like, it was like a four inch piece of aluminum and then he heated up one end of it and it took about, you know, a minute, but the heat traveled through the metal and it melted the wax. And I was like, I had no idea how that worked, but it was fascinating and awesome and very easy for me to see and understand right. as a kid. Some of the best memories I have of my dad are just him pulling out the telescope at night and, you know, doing some stargazing. It's so simple, and yet there's, I think there are a few things that inspire, you know, an interest in science and in the universe than just looking at the stars. Right. And I'll tell you a quick sad story about um, a friend of mine is who's a teacher um, he's a seventh grade science teacher and he is a skeptic and he believes in um, really inspiring kids with hands-on sort of assignments and not just teaching from a book. And one of the assignments was go out this weekend at some point with one of your parents and look at the sky and identify these stars and tell me what you see. And um, some of the kids didn't do it. Um, and the parents complained that he gave them a failing grade on that assignment because why should their kids have to go outside? Why can't they just sit and learn from a book? They were furious that they had to take a night out of their schedules to go outside with their kids. Um, They were just too busy to do it. And the kids should just learn on their own. And I find Mm -hmm. that so depressing, that kind of attitude um, where you can, if you just... You know, just take take a day, take a night off to to talk to your kids about something interesting and cool. Do something together. Like it'll make all the difference. But yeah, I mean, it's bad enough that so many people, so many adults out there that have children, aren't interested in science and don't know anything about it. And the only way their kids are going to hear about science are in school. But we, the people that listen to and make this show and are into skeptical. Th- theme shows like you know i'm a fan of other skeptical shows you know we're the people that like science yeah so so we should be the people that are really making our kids enthusiastic about it i mean i think it, it makes such a big difference if you share your enthusiasm and you you, you spread that to them and, and take them to museums and do those things because you're going to like it anyway yeah mm. yeah absolutely it's just have fun with them that's the that's the first thing it is a ton of fun i have so much fun with yep. my daughters and it, it's easy just to weave a little science lesson in there 
uh, and they, they do soak it up. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Absolutely. Okay, yes. here we go. Item number one. A recent large epidemiological study shows no evidence of an adverse effect from light alcohol drinking during pregnancy. Item number two, a review of published evidence concludes that placing speed cameras on roads reduces accidents, injuries, and deaths. And item number three, a recent survey of Facebook users found that the number one reason for unfriending relates to offline behavior and relationships. Evan, go first. Uh, So no evidence of an adverse effect from light alcohol drinking. During pregnancy, I, I imagine we mean by light alcohol drinking, we quantity rather than say a light beer or something to that effect. Yes, quantity. Quantity. There's got to be a lot of data on that. I, I think that's right. Um, light alcohol drinking during pregnancy, no adverse effect. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised. Think about before science and modern medicine. Probably how many women were drinking. <laughs> Way back when. The second one is interesting. Evidence concluding that placing speed cameras on roads. Now, those are, we're talking about cameras positioned like on poles that are catching people speeding. Correct. Reduces accidents, injuries, and deaths. I'm inclined to think that this one's the fiction because a lot of people don't even know that there are speed cameras going by, right? What are they, you know, how many cameras have you probably passed by on a road and you didn't even realize you were passing a camera? So if you don't know it's there in the first place, you're still going to go whatever speed you're going to go at. The last one, the recent survey of Facebook users, the number one reason for unfriending relates to offline behavior and relationships. I don't know. That one's a little tricky too. I suppose it uh, makes sense to a certain degree, but What would be other possible reasons for unfriending people that's not related to offline behavior? I'd have to think about that for a while, but I don't think I have that much time. Therefore, I'm going to say the speed cameras one. That one is fiction. Okay, Jay. So a recent large epidemiological study shows no evidence of an adverse effect from light alcohol drinking during pregnancy. This goes against... This goes against all the sage advice I've ever heard people tell other people about what to do when you're pregnant or what not to do. And drinking is definitely one of the things. Like, I've seen pregnant women smoke and drink, and I have like a really strong emotional reaction to seeing that. The smoking thing, there's no doubt in my mind that that's bad. The drinking, especially light drinking, which we're not 100% sure what, what that is. Light drinking is probably one drink. You know, it's it's possible that it might not be bad. You know, I mean, the, the alcohol does does the alcohol get into uh, the baby's blood, or does it get filtered like other things are filtered? It probably does get through, but I don't know. And I would imagine that if it does get through, it's bad. But I, that's that's interesting. But I'm not sure about that. A view published of uh, evidence concludes that placing speed cameras on roads reduce accidents and whatnot. Sure. I would say, though, Evan, in, in, to answer your question, that it, it has to be that the drivers know that the cameras are there. Think about how, how much driving you do, and how, how do you know where all your camera, all the cameras are? No, but on, maybe on they the did a study. Maybe they did a study in like a very small region where people do know, and they they were able to compare 
statistics before and after. And also, Evan, you know, you, we're in the United States where there are a lot of cameras on highways. Just so you know, there are. They're there. You'll see these very tall poles that have uh, have cameras Jay, on them. Jay, but does that affect how you drive? Me, no, not nope. at all. Nope. Not at all. But in Europe, I think, um, and Rebecca, you would know better than I, but if I'm correct, there's a lot of cameras used in England, for example. They're, they have a high number of streets covered by cameras and, and things like that, and that may have an effect. The study may not have been done in the United States. So I would say that one is true. So the third one, recent survey about the Facebook thing, found that people defriend other people because of offline behavior. And that makes a lot of sense, too. So it's a battle between the drinking and the Facebook. Oh, God damn, Steve. This is really good. This is, this is an excellent science or fiction. This is excellent. Well done. Well, yeah, we've run out know, of time. Good night, folks. I'm going to go with the Facebook one as the fake. And okay. I have a reason why, but I'm not going to say it until after the review. Call it, call it okay. Facebook. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, I, I think that uh, we've come around to accepting a moderate amount of alcohol during pregnancy, particularly small amounts of wine, I've heard, can be beneficial to both the mother and the baby. Um, so not just not bad for them, but actually good for them. So I think that that's true. I think that speed cameras have in the past been shown to reduce accidents. Um, this isn't new fodder uh, for for study. So that makes sense. Um, and not just if you can see the speed camera, but if you're on a road and you get ticketed thanks to a speed camera, then you're not going to speed on that road anymore um, because you know it's going to be a near certainty that you're going to get busted. So, uh, and that's a good point from Jay. It might not have been in the U.S., and you're correct that there are cameras everywhere here. Um, I don't know about speed cameras, though, because I don't drive, but they friggin' love spying on their citizens here. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not a fan, personally, but, um, yeah, Girl. speed cameras, okay. I'm good with them. Which leaves Facebook users the number one reason for unfriending relating to offline behavior and relationships. No, I I think um, it's not my personal number one reason for unfriending people. Um, what is your number one reason? Too much stupid garbage that I don't care about. Exactly. <laughs> up my uh-huh. Facebook page. Freaking uh, Farmville. Uh, oh God! One day, yeah. some dude parked his ass on Farmville for the entire day, and I saw every <laughs> single thing that that guy did. And yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'm not. I'm just not doing that anymore. It, <laughs> like, it got don't. pretty bad. Like I, because I would. I I'm all full on Facebook friends now, so it doesn't really matter anymore. But I I used to like I posted a warning a while back saying, look, don't post. I don't care about your chicken babies or your your pirate mafia or whatever. Like you do what you, pirate mafia. You do what you're gonna do, um, but don't. Put it on my wall. I don't want to see it. Uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a cold bitch. All right, when it comes to Farmville chicken babies, so nice I think that I think that that is the fiction. Okay, so you all agree? Yes, we do. That a recent large epidemiological study shows no evidence of an adverse effect from light alcohol drinking during pregnancy. 
And you all think that one is science? And that and one is, is science. Oh, yep. thank God. You're all safe so far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, one, this study looked at uh, 11,513 children born between September 2000 and January 2002 and used surveys to look at uh, the mother's drinking habits. Light drinking was one or two units of alcohol per week or at any one time. So no two more fingers. than two at a time and no more than two, two per week. Right. And that was associated, actually, in this study, there was a 30% decrease in behavioral problems in children whose mothers were in this category. But the, the authors did not conclude that there was a beneficial effect, uh, just that there isn't evidence for a harmful effect. You know, again, this is an epidemiological study, so you have to be careful about, you know, inferring cause and effect. Um, you know, for example, it may be possible that mothers who have had one child with problems may be extra careful about drinking, not drinking during their next pregnancy, right? So there may be that, that, that no drinking category is always tricky because that can always include ex drinkers for whatever reason. And that's again one of the weaknesses of epidemiological studies. And you know, it is true that just in general, it looks like evidence is pointing in the direction of small amounts of alcohol don't carry a, a health risk, and in fact, there may be some benefits. So this really isn't surprising. Let's go on to number two. A review of published evidence concludes that placing speed cameras on roads reduces accidents, injuries, and deaths. Remember, this is a review of published evidence. This wasn't a new study. This was just somebody going and looking at all the studies that have already been published. So it wasn't one study. Uh-huh. Uh, and this one is science. Uh, they, they found that there was actually a consensus among published studies showing that when you put a ca- speed camera into an area – and then you follow you know, the number of car accidents and injuries and deaths in that area that it actually drops. It, go, it does, in fact, go down. People do curb their speeding, and that, and that does reduce the number of accidents and injuries. Uh, so it's actually effective, as annoying as it might be. Hmm. Well, that's good. I just don't good. know if, like, you know, unless I'm looking out for it, I don't, I don't know. But I, th- I think Rebecca's right. Are. I mean, if you get a ticket... Then they usually send you a picture of your car, right? You know where you got the ticket. Yeah, definitely. You'll know, okay, I can't speed on this road anymore. So if you f- follow accidents on that road, it goes down, right? Because most, most of the driving you do is routine, right? Most of the time you spend in your car is on roads that you, that you are on quite a bit. So if you got a ticket on your way to work, well, you, you know, you're not going to keep doing that, right? All of this means that a recent survey of Facebook users found that the number one reason for unfriending relates to offline behavior and relationships is fiction. Mm. Pure, unabashed. So Rebecca was right, correct? Well, hang on. Yes, correct. I'll tell you that. Steve, does it actually mention Farmville? Just let me know that. (laughs) Not specifically, but here. Mafia Wars. 57% of those surveyed unfriended for online reasons. And only 26.9% did so for offline behavior. So offline meaning like you're not friends with them in the real world, so you unfriend them on Facebook, right? Yeah. But 57% did it just for their online behavior. So they also further broke down which online behaviors were the, were the most likely to cause unfriending. What do you guys think? So Jay, you and Rebecca both think that it's for Spamming with like useless bullcrap. Yeah, spammy, spam, especially with like the ridiculous – 
like games that that um, people play where they have to do tons of things, and they're also soliciting you to please join in so they can get freaking right. you know and uh, you know freaking yeah you know, extra powder from this bush or something yeah, yeah. like. <laughs> Come on, what are you doing? That was, in fact, the number one reason for unfriending on Facebook. Aha! High five, Jay. High five. Yeah, you oh, guys Rebecca. spend way too much time on Facebook, <laughs> but, ladies Rebecca and gentlemen. It's for multiple uninteresting and unimportant posts. Yeah. It actually scares me. Like like I said before, there are literally people that, like, they're at work and somebody – I hope. All right. I, I retract that. They may not be at work, but probably a lot of people are, and they're just killing it on, on Farmville. Yeah. Like – Holy shit. How do you have the time to do all that? Mm. Cutting into productivity. So what do you think the second most common reason was? Tagging really unfortunate photos of you. Poking <laughs> you too many times. <laughs> the second reason was posting about polarizing topics like religion and politics. Love it. Really? Yeah, see, that, uh, yeah, doesn't, that doesn't happen with me. Love it. For people like us, we like that. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Oh, my gosh. Start like, a fire and I'll watch it. One of, on, one of the reasons I maintain a Facebook page. The uh, the third most common reason was inappropriate posts such as crude or racist comments. Oh mm. come on, really? <laughs> oh, I come can't on. read about that. Oh God, people <laughs> actually have sex? No, they don't. Get the come on. Oh, the, well, I have banned. The only other way reason why I've unfriended people is when they've said something really rude to me because I I just I don't understand. Yeah. that. like why are you my friend and you just posted that? Right. People are weird. If we switch to, uh, like, if you run a blog, you have to have certain criteria by which you will ban somebody from your comments, yeah. right? That, I, I think, is probably the number one reason. If you want to get banned from the comments, you know, make some kind of re- racist, white supremacist comment or something like that's completely inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, we'll get oh, yeah, banned. another guy, like, uh, some guy used the word faggot, and he didn't understand why I... Like I defriended him, and then he sent me all these like emails complaining. Like <laughs> you just don't understand. It was a joke, and it's like, but it wasn't a funny joke. If you're gonna use the word faggot, make it a funny joke. It so wasn't I, a British <laughs> a Britishism. No, he meant no, it as a derogatory right. term. No, some right. yeah, he was like actually talking about. He was using it as like an insult. Oops. Yeah, I shouldn't have put buggerer up on my <laughs> page the other day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's interesting, though, but the, so the, the researchers talked about the fact that we have this new social milieu, and it's actually ready-made for research. You know, it's, they actually use Twitter to, to survey these 1,500 Facebook users. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the own social rules are evolving. Uh, it's interesting. And those rules are not always the same as you know, the, the physical world, the non-virtual world. This is a great science or fiction, Steve. You liked it? Good. Yeah, I did. Because I liked honest. it before I I liked it before I knew the answer. <laughs> you, know, you got it wrong. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you feel like Facebook is is good but it's also a pain in the ass? No, it's um, just a pain in the ass. It's evil. They, you see, I think you guys pay too much attention to it. I I I look, yeah, I was just, just telling it? I was just telling Jay offline. I said I haven't been on Facebook in about a week or so. Now I did have a bunch of messages and stuff stored up, but I don't live by. I don't have to see Facebook every day. I know some people who need to be on there every ten minutes. I like interacting with listeners and skeptic readers and stuff on there, but like the way it's run, the privacy bullshit. Like I just, oh, I hate it. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I get a little overwhelmed by it because I feel like I do. Of course, there's a ton of 
posts that I don't care about. But there are a lot of people on there that I'm friends with that I really do like what they post. I mean, Rebecca, you're one of them. I mean, I typically try to keep up with what you're doing and you usually make me laugh or, or you find something interesting. But I get a lot of people hit me up with awesome stuff, like great content gets delivered to me on Facebook. But there is that glut of stuff to get through. I have 350 emails in my Facebook inbox right now. I just checked. Oh, yeah. No, I have like, over I 999. It stops counting at 999. Did you know that? 402 for me. I can't keep up, though. I mean, I, you know, and I'm constantly yeah. like deleting emails and, oh, I didn't get back to that guy. Oh, and I feel guilty and feel bad. You know, like it's it's a lot of that. Mm. So I think overall, it's probably a little bit more stressful for me than it is like this great pleasure, you know? While we're talking about Facebook, can I mention that I have, this is so, this is terrible. I hate having to say this. This sounds terrible. I have a fan page and I can't, because people keep, people keep sending me friend requests and I, I want you all to be my friends, but Facebook won't let me. So I had to start this fan page. So if you sent me a friend request and you haven't heard back from me, that's why. Go find my fan page and sign up to that because it's the exact same thing. I post the same stuff on both. So, yeah. I think Facebook is useful for marketing. Like we have an SGU Facebook yeah. page. I I just don't think I think you have to figure out how not to get sucked into it so that it's consuming your life, right? Yeah, self-control. That's what <laughs> Try that. Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? All right, I have a I have a quote by Marie Curie. She's rad. Nobel laureate. That's right. Ooh. Back when it really meant something. Badass right? mofo. All right, so this this quote was sent in by a listener named Jason Grant, who lives in Japan. Thank you, Jason. I really like this quote. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Madame Marie Curie! But what about, uh, you said there's nothing to be feared. What about... Sharks with freaking laser beams on their head, <laughs> or in a in a water spout, isn't that your your big fear? Yeah, Jay. Yeah, like basically the the pinnacle of fear for me is a tornado filled with water, which is called a water spout, which with like incredibly huge, very toothy <laughs> sharks like rolling around on the inside of it, like barreling like down straight a very at narrow a very narrow alleyway <laughs> at me. <laughs> is it dark? Uh, just... Did you just come from the theater or something? Yeah, I did. Just... It's almost like Batman's origin, right? <laughs> Except it's me and the sharks and the, and the freaking typhoon. On Monday the 11th, I will be at Sheffield Skeptics in the Pub in England. And on Tuesday the 12th, I will be at Nottingham. Not Nottingham. Not Nottingham. Nodding, nodding, off, nodding off. The place where Robin Hood's from. Skeptics in the Pub. Um, Isn't that Sherwood Forest? Yeah. I have an announcement as well. Ticket sales are now available for SGU Vancouver. Look on our homepage. And there'll be a link to the CFI site where you can get tickets to our live show with George Rabb and the reception following. November awesome. 20th. I'm not done. <laughs> well, go ahead then. All right, go ahead. The 15th, Friday the 15th, begins TAM London, and I think there are still some tickets left. Uh, with Tim Vincent's going to be doing a thing on Friday night, and Stephen Fry, and Cory Doctorow, and tons of people. It's going to be awesome. And then I'm doing uh, a fringe event, um, like a, uh, a, a quiz. A TV fringe. show. I'm doing a quiz show um, oh. as a TAM fringe awesome. event. and I. 
I think it's going to be Thursday night. Oh, I don't even know. Go to go to Tam London's website, <laughs> and and you, you'll see a ton of cool fringe events going on that are mostly free and happening around town. So, get your ass to Tam London. Yeah, get your ass to Tam. Do it. Well, thank you all for joining me again this oh, week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be joined. It really to you. was. You did a good job this week, Steve. Thank Keep you. You up. guys too. And yeah. until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.